The following message is made available for you by Emanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emanuelmora.com. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to be starting in the second part of verse 1. Uh, and then we're going to be going uh, only through verse 11 today. So follow along with me uh, in your Bible, starting in chapter 4, verse 1. Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped at Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines lined up in battle formation against Israel. And as the battle intensified, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who struck down about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the troops returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Let's bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh. Then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh to bring back the ark of the covenant of the Lord of armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord entered the camp, all Israel raised such a loud shout that the ground shook. The Philistines heard the sound of the war cry and asked, What is this loud shout in the Hebrews' camp? When the Philistines discovered that the Ark of the Lord had entered the camp, they panicked. A god has entered their camp, they said. Woe to us! Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who will rescue us from these magnificent gods? These are the gods that slaughtered the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Show some courage and be men, Philistines. Otherwise, you'll serve the Hebrews just as they served you. Now be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated. And each man fled to his tent. The slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Let's pray. God, we pray that as we approach this, this text a delicate text that is not easy to hear, especially the implications that this text brings. But Father, I pray that in it you would bring hope and healing and restoration to our hearts when we have replaced you with idols. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Well, I'm reluctant to tell you how much we shop at Amazon.com. Uh, it's not as if we're impulsive shoppers, you know, strolling through and finding, hey, that looks pretty good, let's go ahead and order it. But it's just so much more convenient to know what you want and just do a little search, click a button, and two days later, you get a package at your door. And who doesn't love packages? Now, unlike uh, Kohl's or Target, where if you order online, you can hold on to it if you want to return it and actually bring it to the physical store, at Amazon and other online retailers, you actually have to send it back to them. And uh, uh, for some of us, that's not an issue, but uh, it, it's, it's an issue when you don't have a box. 
that fits the item that you are trying to send back. Perhaps you've already recycled the box that it's come in, or maybe it came in one of those plastic packages that you have to tear, and, uh, and then it's just garbage at that point. Either way, you're left looking for something to send it back in that's stable enough to make it to Kentucky without being damaged. Uh, if, you, uh, experience, if your experience is anything like mine, then normally the experience uh, finds either a box that's too large or a box that is too small. If it's too large, then you're left trying to find all the, the recycled papers and all that sort of stuff to, to stuff in the box so that when it goes through the mail, it doesn't jiggle so much that the item breaks by the time it gets back to the warehouse. Or if it's too small, it stresses the box and it's really hard to, to seal up. And rare is the day that you have a box that fits the item just so perfectly that it almost gives you joy with being able to package it up and send it uh, out and not even worry about the safety. You know, when it comes to our understanding of God, many of us are trying desperately to find a box that God fits nicely into. We want to think that we have him figured out in such a way uh, that life should go just simply as it should. For some of us, God is, is too small that we have to put padding around him in order to keep him safe and secure. And for some of us, we are uncomfortable with a God that is too big for the box that we have created for him. We don't like when his character and his attributes stretch the sides of the box so that you can't put tape or maybe even the sides of the boxes uh, start to tear because that's scary and that's unpredictable. And so we'll settle for an understanding of God that is tame and stable and, and controllable. And we'll put as much packing tape around that package as we possibly can so that we won't get hurt uh, by this God doing something that we might not like. But when we read the Bible, we find a God that doesn't fit nicely into any box that we create for him. Yes, he has clearly shown his character. And he's clearly shown his attributes through his words and through his actions. And he will never betray his character and his attributes uh, because he is immutable or, or unchangeable. But two things tend to happen when we encounter uh, God. On the one hand, we want to highlight all those really good things that we like about him. We love uh, his, his love and his kindness and his patience and, and his uh, grace and his mercy and so on. And, and we want to sweep under the, under the rug those things that we d don't really like about him, his wrath and, and maybe even his sovereignty and his judgment and so on. But yet on the other hand, we read of his miraculous dealings uh, with other people and we think that he is bound to replicate those sorts of things in our lives. So if we can just manipu uh, manipulate him in such a way, or if we can find the right words or the right formula, then maybe we can have a chance at being Aladdin and God being the genie. And our text today brings us to one of those very instances in the history of Israel in which the Israelites tried to put God in a box. See, they had grown up with all the stories of how the Lord did miraculous things for his people. 
They had, uh, they had heard uh, how the Lord delivered them from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, leading them through the Red Sea on dry ground, and how he had led them to the Promised Land by defeating all of their enemies uh, before them. They had heard in the past few hundred years how when they had been oppressed by foreign nations, that how God had raised up a judge to defeat the Lord's enemies and bring them back into independence and, and safety. And what they forgot is that God is not a God who is formulaic. He is not a God who can, who can be placed into any box that they create for him. Nor is he a God that can or will be manipulated. And they forgot that this undomesticated God has no obligation to bless them when they are living out of step with his will and his ways. They forgot that sometimes when we are in sin apart from him, he will actually go against us because he is for us. And the consequence ended in one of the most tragic and humiliating events and humbling events that they would ever experience. I have only one point this morning, and that is that we have to get God out of the box that we have made for him. We need to get God out of the box that we may have made for him. All the way up until now, the focus on the, of the narrative has been on Samuel. If you remember, Samuel was born in a political context in which the, the 12 tribes of Israel operated more or less independently. And he was born into a religious and moral context uh, in which there were no rules. In fact, Judges 21-25 uh, gives us the good summary of what life was like. It was that in those days, there wasn't a king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to them. It was moral anarchy. It was, it was pluralistic. It was an inclusive society that just let you do whatever you wanted to do. But for the next few chapters, we're not going to hear from Samuel. He's going to be an afterthought here. He'll be back, but the action now focuses on God and how he is moving the chest pieces for bringing in the future king. Verse 1 tells us, that Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and, and camped at Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped at Aphek. So this is the first time that the Philistines find their way into the, uh, the narrative of 1 Samuel. It certainly won't be the, the last time. They will be the ones that will raise up Goliath, and we'll talk about that story here in, in, uh, in a few months, actually. Uh, they were an ancient people group that probably descended from the Egyptians, uh, they were primarily located on the western side of Israel uh, from the Mediterranean Sea, uh, a little bit out from there. And they were made up of about five city-states, all independently working together. And since Israel overtook Canaan in the conquest of Joshua, it was the Philistines that were the constant uh, thorn in the side or the bane of Israel. And throughout the last half of the book of Judges, if you remember the story of Samson, that was the story of the Philistines oppressing uh, the nation of, uh, well, one of the tribes of Israel and Samson destroying the aristocracy of the Philistines. And now here in verse 1, we're not sure why the Israelites went out to fight. 
the, the text is really ambiguous as to who the aggressors are here. But we know that these two nations have a long history of conflict and they were about to throw down. It says that the Philistines were camping at Aphek, which is only about 22 miles from the capital city of Shiloh. And to put that into perspective, that's about from here to Cambridge. There really is not that much of a distance between the capital of Israel and where this battle is going to happen. And we really don't know where Ebenezer was, but we can assume that it was close to Aphek. But one thing that is really interesting here is that the author is using the idea of Ebenezer as literary irony. Because the word Ebenezer literally means stone of help. And here it's at this location that Israel will take an inanimate object to bring them help in battle. And it will epically fail. Verse 2 tells us how. The Philistines lined up in the battle formation against Israel. And as the battle intensified, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who struck down about 4,000 men on the battlefield. Again, when we read this, we ought to see that something is profoundly wrong here. This is not supposed to happen. How could this happen? This is God's people and these enemies of, of God's people have seemingly won. And maybe you have been in a situation in which the result didn't seem to go according to plan. And you're left wondering, how, how could this happen? Why did this happen? I'm a child of God. This is not what I signed up for. I thought that God had plans for my well-being, not for disaster. That he had plans to give me a future and a hope. And all that I am left with is this life in chaos. And so for the Israelites, they, they, they now march back to the camp with their tail between their legs and the elders ask a logical but very important question in verse 3. Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Did you catch that subtle mindset of the elders here? They understood something that, that, that we are often not comfortable with. Verse 2 was clear that it was the Philistines who defeated Israel. But yet the elders here understand that it was the Lord that made all this happen. They understood that it is the Lord who controls history of the world. And they understood what Paul would later write in Romans eleven thirty six when he said, For from him and through him and to him are all things. So they conclude this defeat was the Lord's doing. And while they asked the right question, notice that they didn't allow enough space for God to answer. They did what many of us are guilty of doing time and time again when something happens that we don't like. Instead of the painful process of waiting on God, asking God's help and his direction, 
we take matters into our own hands, and yet we call it the work of God. We may spiritualize it by saying, you know, I feel led to do this, when all it is, in fact, is our impulses and our emotions that are driving us to disobedience and disregard for God. It puts God into a box, and God will have none of that. Look at verse 3. When the troops returned to the camp, the elders asked, why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Let's bring out the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh. Then it will go well for us and save us from our enemies. So what's the solution here? Let's go get the ark. Now, the ark was, was constructed under the leadership of Moses. It was basically a wooden chest that had some of the most sacred items from Israel's past. It had a copy of the law, the stone tablets of the law. It also had a golden bowl that held some of the manna that the Israelites ate in the wilderness. And it also held Aaron's staff that had miraculously budded. But also, the ark uh, came to be uh, the object by which the Israelites believed this is where God dwells. He's not this omnipresent God, but yet he is, he is confined to this chest. But God never promised such a thing. As Stephen told the leaders in Acts chapter 7, verse 48, when he said, The Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with human hands. He's not bound by time. God is not bound by space. God is not bound by matter. He is greater than anything that we could conceive of. But notice the subtle hint in this dialogue of their abandonment of the one true and living God toward idolatry. They didn't say, let's bring out this ark and then God will go with us. But what did they say? Rather, let us bring out the ark, then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. It's no longer about a person of God. It is now the it of the ark. So understand what's going on here. They had abandoned the idea of a relationship with God. A seeking of his face and a seeking of his glory and it had instead settled on the use of a of the ark as if it were a magic wand that could with a with a swipe of the wand it could bring victory and salvation for them remember that this was a time of great moral anarchy they would live whatever way they wanted to and completely ignore God until they needed him. Sound familiar? That God is just sort of the last resort. We'll just live any way we want, but yet when our enemies come and we seem like life is going to get destroyed, then let's go to God. They're more concerned with success than they are repentance. They're more concerned with what they can get from God rather than getting God himself. And we're not exempt from this either. We live in a time that is just as morally relativistic and perhaps even more so. And even the church suffers from what some theologians would call rabbit foot theology. We don't want to seek God or his holiness. But we're more than willing to control him. 
And so all we need to do is just rub that lucky rabbit's foot and everything will be just fine. We do that in our approach to salvation. There's been a history over the last few hundred years that has said that if you just pray a prayer or walk an aisle uh, or anything like that, these are just magical incantations and you'll be saved. We have a whole market for uh, Christian books and ministries that guarantees that if you just pray, pray the prayer of Jab, uh, prayer the pray the prayer of Jabez, or if you just name it and claim it, then you're going to have your best life now. The Israelites here attempt to bring God to manipulate God, and it is futile, and ours is futile too. Look at verse 4 through 5. So the people sent men to Shiloh to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord entered the camp, all the Israelites raised such a loud shout that the ground shook. So here now is this 22-mile procession in which the ark is on its way to Aphek. And everything that is happening in this particular scene shows exactly what is wrong with Israel. It is a nation that is founded upon Yahweh as their king and as their God, and it's living in complete rebellion against him. They're carrying a box that they think they're transporting the tr one true and living God to the battlefield with a false belief that by doing so, he is going to ensure victory. It is being led by the high priest's sons who have a reputation for defiling everything that is holy. If you remember just a few chapters ago, they were stealing the, uh, the offerings that people were giving to the Lord. They were stealing the Lord's offering by taking the, the, the fattened uh, meat that was supposed to be sacrificed to the Lord. They were defiling the temple by, having, uh, by sleeping with the women who were ministering at the door of the, 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 the tent of meeting. And this is the climax of their rebellion against God in the period of the judges. And they rejoice in it. The ark comes into the camp, and they go nuts. Happy times are here again. God has come. This is going to be great. If you remember Brody in the movie Raiders, and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, he summed it up well when he said, An army which carries the ark before it is invincible. That was their thought. But God had left them a long time ago. And it's here that we ought to pause and tremble a bit. We need to be aware of our assumptions when it comes to God. Yes, Jesus told us that he is always with us, even to the end of the age. That he is, uh, that he is for us and not against us. But we must not assume that that means that things will always go well. We must understand that sometimes God will turn his face from us because he is for us. 
when we are running away from him, it is not outside of him to let us trip on a rock. The ultimate goal is to bring us back into relationship with him. We must not assume that God owes us anything or that we can control the outcome of any situation by simply appealing to our relationship with him. You and I can bring out the ark into many messy areas in our life, but if we are living apart from him in word, thought, and deed, we have absolutely no assurance that he is there. For the Philistines, this war cry actually incites them to work harder. Look in verse 6. The Philistines heard this sound, and the war cry, and asked, What is this loud shout in the Hebrews' camp? When the Philistines discovered that the ark of the Lord had entered the camp, they panicked. A God has entered their camp. They said, Woe to us! Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who will rescue us from these magnificent gods? These are the gods that slaughtered the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. So the Philistines... Just like many of the other cultures that we've seen so far have heard these stories of what God did for the Israelites. They had heard of the Exodus. They had heard what happened when the walls came tumbling down at Jericho. They had heard about how the Lord had defeated the enemies of the Israelites as they marched into the land of promise. And so here, they have this in their minds. They're terrified and they don't know where to go. They're polytheistic. They believe that there are many gods that are after them here. And now these gods are on their way. Now we tend to minimize this word woe because we don't use it very often in English. And we think, oh, woe is me. But woe in the Bible is a very serious anxiety. We are done for. They're scared out of their minds and they had nowhere to go. They could retreat, but only 11 miles west is the Mediterranean Sea. They're stuck. The only thing that they have to do is to stand their ground and fight. And indeed they do. This war cry doesn't make them cower. It strengthens them a bit. Look again in verse 9. They say, show some courage and be men, Philistines. Otherwise, you'll serve the Hebrews just as they served you. Now be men and fight. Now again, as the readers here, we have to assume that God is behind all of this. There are instances in the Old Testament that we simply don't understand. In Isaiah chapter 10, there's an instance in which God sends the Assyrians to Israel to destroy them in an act of discipline. But then he goes and he destroys the Assyrians because they afflicted the Israelites. And then when we look in uh, Jeremiah uh, chapter 25, God sends the Babylonians to overtake and destroy Jerusalem, but then for doing so, he judges the Babylonians. 
So here we find an instance which God is working out his plan for Israel by sending the Philistines. Now they're going to get it eventually. But here God is sending them to judge Israel. And here's what happens in verse 10. The Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And each man fled to his tent. The slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. It's a big loss. Before they brought out the ark, they lost only 4,000 men. And here now, in their presumption and their arrogance, they believed that God would go before them and that they could manipulate him to force a victory. And it was at the cost of 30,000 lives. This, I believe, is the most catastrophic loss of soldiers that Israel had encountered up to this point. And worst of it, in verse 11 tells us the ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. The heart of Israel, the very representation of God was taken by an enemy. This is not a five-alarm fire, folks. This is a ten-alarm fire. Like, it doesn't get worse than this. This is bad. God had been defeated in their eyes. He's no longer with them. Or so they thought. What they didn't know and what we're privileged to know is that this is nothing but the unfolding promise of God working before their eyes. If you remember, an anonymous prophet came to Eli and, and told him that both of his sons were going to die on the same day. Samuel, a couple chapters ago, said the exact same thing to Eli. God's patience with Eli and his children were complete, that they would die on the same day, and they did. Israel had lost this massive battle, in part because of the corrupt leadership of Israel. Now, we can't necessarily take this instance and say that all tragedy in our lives is a direct result of the rebellion against God. I think that's inappropriate to, uh, to apply that uh, conclusion in, in all cases. God allows or directs some things to happen in our lives that we just... We don't know why. We may never know why. With that in mind, however, this particular instance ought to be a lesson for us to do an inventory of our hearts. In what ways are you reaping the fruits of your attempt to manipulate God? Are there sins in our lives that we are willingly engaging in while at the same time believing that God is 100% behind us? Are we living in the delusional arrogance that God is obligated to produce results? Can you be comfortable with the truth that God if God has willed something, bringing 10,000 arcs to the battlefield won't change it. 
Are you ready to get in step with God, not so that you can get stuff from him, but so that you can get him and more of him? Before you ask God's power in whatever you're facing, have you first dealt with God? You see, it's really tempting to fall into a theology of Christian magic when what we really need is the theology of the cross. And here in, verse, uh, in, in 1 Samuel 4, God is completely secure with himself to the extent that he is okay with temporary, temporarily losing his reputation in order to bring his people back to him. It's a foreshadow of what he would do a thousand years later in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his incarnation, Jesus had to condescend himself into a form of a servant, putting aside some of his glory and some of his, his attributes so that he could live, die, resurrect, and ascend for us. And whereas the ark was completely powerless to save Israel from their enemies and God was thought to be defeated, Christ, who is the true ark, who is God dwelling with us, was humiliated by his enemies, stripped naked and nailed to a cross. And in that seeming defeat of his death, he was able to save us to the uttermost. You see, Christianity is not a technique for manipulating God or getting your best life now. It is a it is a humble appeal for grace and mercy that is provided only through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. God has provided the true ark in Jesus, and our job is to repent and to trust in him. The battle might not go in the way that we want it to go, but we can be confident that if we, by faith in Jesus Christ carry the ark of Jesus into every sphere of our lives, we can be confident that it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Now, I may not be successful in finding a box to fit an Amazon return in, but I know that if I get taped up and sent off, it's going to get to where it needs to be. But to find a box that's Big enough for God? Good luck. Thankfully, we have a God that's much bigger and better than any box that we can fit into. We have a God that has provided victory over sin, shame, guilt, temptation, and anything else this world throws at us. And his name is Jesus. He goes into any battle of ours, regardless of the odds. And he just asks that we trust him. Let's pray. 